You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, it's good to gather uh, together again this morning, and uh, we do welcome those who are gathering online uh, this morning and uh, pray that uh, one day soon uh, you'll be able to be here joining us in person. And um, it, is, uh, it is a treasure uh, that we get to gather together. And, and the Lord has given us this time so that we might be reminded of His faithfulness, of His goodness, to be reminded of what His Word says, and that by the time we're done here this morning, that our hearts have been encouraged and revived and we're ready to go back out on mission for his namesake. That's the, the pattern of this gathering each week. And uh, I just want to kind of look ahead a little bit. This week we're uh, Romans 8, 31 to 34. Next week we will end the chapter. Some of you wondered if it would ever end the chapter, but we will get to the end of the chapter. Romans 8, 35 to 39. And uh, also next weekend, we're going to have a baptismal, a baptismal service. And uh, we're going to see uh, at least a couple people baptized, possibility of some more. I, there's some applications in, so uh, we need to, to look at that. But excited about that next weekend. And then following that weekend, we're going to take a break from the book of Romans. And we're going to be studying Joshua uh, this summer. So, and uh, rest is the theme of... Uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Uh, what is it now? Something about uh, receiving all that God has promised. Something like that. So anyway, we'll, you'll see it. It's coming. Anyway, I'm, I am really excited about it. I've started to look at the book, and there's just so much we can learn uh, by studying the book of Joshua this summer. So uh, excited about that. And then we'll return to Romans in the fall. So that's the... That's where we're going, and I'm excited that you're here this morning. Uh, just a quick question. How was last week after studying Romans 8, 28 to 30? Was it like, and no problems. I, I was like, I, I, every moment of every day, I was believing and understanding that God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Is that, how did that go? Or maybe after you heard the message, you're like, okay, I nod, I understand it, I believe it, but then you left here and you're kind of like, life is really hard, and, and I have some doubts. I have some fears in my life. Uh, maybe the circumstances of your life were your focus rather than Christ being your focus this last week. I think as we consider Romans 8, 31 to 39 over the next two weeks, Paul is very pastoral. He's given us this great truth about God's sovereignty over your lives, that, that he wants you to understand these things, that God does work all things together for good. What's the good? Christ. If we were to sum it up in one word, it is Christ, you, that you might become more and more like Christ. That's what God is using the circumstances in your life for. And, and, and yet... If I'm being honest, there's times where my circumstances seem so overwhelming that those, those words, I begin to doubt. I begin to maybe fear. Questions like this, is it really true that God uses these things for good? This doesn't feel good. This is hard. 
Can it be that I am not really God's child based on my circumstances? Maybe, maybe, I've, maybe I've got it wrong somehow. Is God's word true in those times where we're under difficulty? We maybe doubt God's word. We, or perhaps maybe we begin to fear that our future is not secure in Christ. We believe that we can mess things up and that if we fall into temptation, that we may fall into temptation and unbelief. We wonder if the enemy will win. Doubt and fear can be enemies against even the strongest believer. Spurgeon put it like this, The lesson of wisdom is be not dismayed by soul trouble. Cast not away your confidence, for it has great recompense for, of reward. Even if the enemy's foot be on your neck, I love the way Spurgeon just give us this pictorial kind of, he's a great illustration. So the enemy's foot being on your neck, expect to rise and overthrow him. Cast the burden of the present along with the sin of the past and the fear of a future upon the Lord who forsakes not his saints. And this is what we're going to be learning in verses 31 to 39. The Lord does not forsake his saints. He's very much with them always. This week we're going to be looking at the work of God in verses 35 to 39. We're going to be looking at the love of God and how they work together for every single believer. And so we need not have fear. We need not have doubt, but we can have confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ as we leave here this morning. And that's my hope for each one of us. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into the text. God, we're so thankful for this time to gather this morning. God, you know that left to ourselves, left alone, God, we would, we would wander. Lord, we would doubt. We would fear. And Lord, even go astray permanently. But Lord, you have not left us to ourselves. Lord, we are your children. Lord, you've given us your spirit. You've given us your word, and you've given us this body of Christ that we might gather together to spur and encourage one another on. God, I'm so thankful that, Lord, you know every heart here this morning. You know the struggles. Lord, you know the wrestlings that each person here has. God, help each one to hear the truth that is contained in your word this morning. Help them to be confident in you. Help them to be assured in you this morning that you are a good and loving God, that you are a powerful God able to do all that you have promised. God, as we leave here, Lord, help us to be equipped, Lord, to serve you on a daily basis, to, to be salt and light for your kingdom's sake, wherever you will send us. God, lead this preacher now by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Romans 8. 31 to 39, as I mentioned, we're just going to study 31 to 34 today, but let's look at the whole of these verses so we might understand them together. Verse 31, Romans chapter 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These words should be of great hope for you and I. They should be of great encouragement. They remind us of the fact that our faith is secure in Jesus Christ. If you're a child of God today, there's great hope for you. And so what we're going to see as we look at verses 31 to 34, God, Paul wants every believer to understand three confidences that you can have in Christ. The first confidence is this. In Christ we have the ultimate protection. In Christ, we have the ultimate protection. Again, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As he goes through these questions, after making this awesome declaration in verses 28 to 30, he asks five questions. And as he asks the questions, the, the answer is so apparent, he really doesn't answer them, right? If you, as, as, he, as, he, as he asks these questions, he's like, if God is for you, then what? Who can be against you? It's answered right there and then. Stott says about these five questions in verses 31 to 39, he hurls them into space. Paul hurls these questions into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell, to answer them and to deny the truth in which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Again, remember in Romans 8.28, he says, and we know. We don't hope. We don't like maybe. It's we know. We are confident in this that whoever loves God for those people who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work, all things work together for good. And what is the good? Is that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, how do I know whether this will happen for sure? Well, because God knew you long before you were here. He predestined you. He chose that you would be his child. He has called you with a call that you could not refuse. He has justified you, and he will glorify you. So what shall we say about these things is Paul's response to that. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is all too apparent in the question. When you have God on your side, it does not matter who your enemy is. Now, it does not mean this. You will not have anybody against you. In fact, 
You're only gaining enemies by choosing to follow God, right? You, you pick up a few enemies when you say, hey, I'm going to follow Christ. Who are the enemies? Well, you have the world against you. You have Satan against you. And let's be honest, we can even be against ourselves, right? Those are three enemies that we all have, our flesh. But the passage says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about the world. What can they do to you? Your enemies. Those who do not believe that Jesus is Lord. Those who are against God. Those who are continually shaking their fist at God. What can they do to you? There's nothing that they can do that the Lord has not allowed. Think about that in the scriptures. As we, as we go back through the scriptures, think about the things that have happened. Let's just think about Acts chapter 12, for example. It's a really interesting chapter. Right at the beginning of Acts chapter 12, we find out just in a sentence that James, the brother of John, has been killed by Herod, the king. There's no explanation. There's no like long story about how all that happened. It's just, it happened. And now what? Peter's in prison. Why? Because Herod's like, my people tend to seem to like this. I guess maybe we'll do this some more. So he has Peter in prison, and God's like, yeah, not for Peter. The sword will not take Peter at this time. Freeze him, jail breaks him, right, through the angel. Peter doesn't even know what's happening. People are praying for him. He shows up. They're like, it must be a ghost. Like, can God really answer our prayers? I mean, I love that illustration. It's like, you know, they're praying like, God, we believe you. And then here he is, but they're still not really sure that he's there. But what, hap- what does that show us? God was over it. For John, John, it's your time. Or sorry, for James, James is your time. For Peter, it's not your time. And though you're in prison, I will free you. And at the end of the chapter, what happens to Herod? He is struck down by an angel. All through the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God's sovereignty over humanity is apparent again and again and again. So if someone comes against you, guess what? God is allowing it in your life. I don't like that. It's okay. You're not supposed to necessarily like it, but you should expect it. Why? If you're going to follow Christ in this world, you will have trouble, and they will persecute you. So, what should our response be? Well, we already seen that in Psalm 118, 5 through 8. Out of my distress, I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. I will not try to gather up men to to win my wars as Israel tried to do in the Old Testament. Like, oh, these enemies are against us. Maybe if we try getting our old enemies with us, maybe we can be freed. And God's like, look to me. Look to me. And as we have people come against us, let us look to him. He is the one who is over it all, and he is on your side. 
And so do not be discouraged when people come against you. But look to the Lord, knowing that he is over it all. What's the worst that man could do? They could take your life. That's the worst they can do, is take your life. But if you have the heart of Paul in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, it's actually, again, not really a fearful thing if they would kill you. Because then we are in the presence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And our fighting is over. And we have eternal rest. So the worst that they could do turns out to be the best for you. And so we do not fear man as they come against us. I love what Christostom has to say here about those who oppose God. He says, those who oppose God end up glorifying him. Yet those, he says this, yet those can be against us so far as they are from thwarting us at all, that even with their, without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings, and that God's wisdom turns their plots into our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. They're coming against you. What does it do? God takes it and conforms you into the image of Christ. And so even in their coming against you, it's for your good. It's for God's glory. God is for us, and so we do not fear what man can do against us. We know that there's nothing more that they can do than what the Lord permits and that he is with us. So we can say confidently in Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That needs to be our mantra over and over again. When the boss isn't being so nice, when the neighbor isn't being so nice, when when, when, when your relatives, when your mom or dad don't like you because of the gospel, whatever the case might be, when people come against you, remember, what can man do to you? God is with you. So keep your focus upon him. And then even if death should be our end as a result of their persecution or coming against us, God has already won the victory over death. And so we, even death we do not fear. There's a, there's a man back in the Reformation, uh, in the early days of the Reformation, Melanchthon, who God used mightily. He was kind of came up with the first systematic theology in those days. And he was in his last days on this earth. They knew he was sick. He was going to die soon. And a pastor came to him, and he was reading, and he read this, this verse, Romans 8.31. And as he read it, Melanchthon said this, Read those words again. And the pastor read, if God is for us, who can be against us? Melanchthon murmured in a kind of ecstasy, that's it. That's it. This text has always been the greatest comfort to him. In the darkest hours of his life, when death, cold, cold stare threatened, he comforted himself again by reciting, if God is for us, who can be against us? This needs to be our mantra as believers over and over again. If God is for us, then who can be against us? It doesn't matter what anyone would, might try to do. God is over it all.
Before we continue on, I want us to think about the opposite of this. If God is against you, then who can be for you? Maybe that would help us as believers to appreciate what we have in God. See, if God is against you, that's a really bad place to be. Who is God against? Let's be reminded in James chapter 4, 4 to 6. Again, always just encourage you to write these things down. Think about them. Study them later. James 4, 4 to 6. He says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no, to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to those of this world who walk in rebellion against him. He is against anyone who is not in Christ. We need to hear that here this morning. Sometimes people have this illusion that, that somehow they're okay with God somehow, and yet they're not in Christ. Oh, yeah, God and I, we're good. I pray to him every now and then. I think he hears me. And, and that's their idea of spirituality. And if there is a heaven, somehow God will let me in. But you need to hear what the scriptures say. God is opposed to the proud. No, every, and no person who has not bowed their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and put their faith in him can say that God is for them. It is only those who are in Christ who can say God is for us. And so I pray this morning, everyone here could say, yes, that's me. God is for me. God is for me. So that even if the world comes against me, I do not fear because he is with me. He is greater. So I will not fear mankind. I will not fear Satan and the demonic forces. I will not fear them. Sometimes people think that, that you know, Satan's like, Satan's here and God's here. It's like an equal thing. You know, like hopefully somehow in the end God will win. God is so much greater than Satan. Do you know that this morning? If you are in him, you need not fear Satan. If you're not in him, then you ought to fear him. If you're not in Christ today, you ought to fear Satan. You ought to, to understand if you're not in Christ, you are enslaved by him and you are serving his purposes. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded you from the truth. So, that's apart from Christ. If you're in Christ, be aware that the lion does prowl around seeking whom he may devour, but if you submit to God, you have no fear. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So I'll tell you how much time I spend every week worrying about Satan. Zero. That's not the focus. The focus is Christ. The focus is the cross. We look to him. When we are in him, no enemy who comes against us do we need to worry about. You, oh, by the way, that was when you came to Christ, that was like target on your back. Satan's coming after you. But we need not fear. Why? Because we're in him. So we do not fear him. 
We do not fear the world. We do not fear Satan. Maybe you fear, most of all, yourself. What am I saying by that? You think you know yourself. You know your wicked heart, your rebellious ways. You begin to think, can God truly forgive me? Will I finally get to the finish line and hear, well done and good, good and faithful servant? You start wondering, doubting that. When you look at your life, you're like, why do I keep wrestling with these things? Why do I keep failing God? I don't know if I can trust me not to mess things up somehow. Well, let me start with this. It's a healthy thing to have distrust of yourself. If it was left up to you, let's, guess what? You would fail. I'm just going to, sorry for tearing you down that way, right? If it's left up to you and your ability to make your way to heaven, you will fail. But praise God, it's not about you. It's about the fact that God is over you. He is the one who foreknew you. He is the one who predestined you. He is the one who's conforming you into the image of his son and will have its final day when you will be fully like Christ. He is the one who is justified and he is the one, he is the one who justifies and he is the one who is faithful. His protection is sure for you and I. Let that sink in this morning. You can't mess it up. If you're a child of his this morning, you can't mess up your salvation. Oh, I guess I should just go off and do whatever I want then. Then you may not be in him. Because God's kids want to be like him. But if you're in him, you can't mess it up. That should bring great encouragement when you find yourself discouraged. In your fight against sin, don't focus on the sin. Focus on Christ and longing to be in fellowship with him. As we're going to get to next week, the treasure of heaven is that we get Christ. And the message that we just read is we read those verses and nothing can separate you from him. And so we look to him in our battle knowing that our protection is sure in him. No one and nothing can separate us from him. Do you believe that this morning? Are you living accordingly? accordingly? If God is for us, who can be against us? Hebrews 13, 5 assures us that God will never leave us nor forsake us. There's never, if you're his kid, there's never going to be like, yeah, you're out, boom. And he just boots you out of the family. That's, never, that's not in the scripture anywhere. Find the verse that says God will kick you out of his family. If you're his kid, you're always his kid. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. His protection is the ultimate. So no one, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Secondly, this is the second confidence we have. In Christ, we have the ultimate provision. We have the ultimate provision. At the heart of what Paul is saying here is whether or not God is able to provide for his people. Can God provide for his people? Well, let's start with this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's provision and his care for you should never be doubted. 
Do you and I doubt at times? We do. Should we? Nope. Should never doubt his care for you, his provision for you. Why? Look to the cross. Look at what it shows you. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, who is all, all of us who are in Jesus Christ, all who have placed our faith in him, then, then how can you doubt that he will give you everything else that you need? How can you doubt that? He who gave us his own son. A lot of commentators point out that the, the parallel to Abraham in offering up his son Isaac. Abraham and his faith and his love for God was willing to offer up his son, but what? God gave another sacrifice and provided for him. And in the same way, God has shown his love, his faithfulness to you by giving his, us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. For all who would place our trust in him. This morning, if you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, you stand opposed to God. And God is not for you, but against you. The only way to be reconciled is to, reconcile, to recognize God's incredible demonstration of love for you and I. It is to feel the weight of your sin, to know you deserve condemnation, and then to recognize, but yet Christ died for me. As he hung on the cross, he took my sins, my past sins, my present sins, my future sins upon himself. And then the wrath of God was placed upon him. This was God's love for you and I. The question this morning is, have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your trust in him? God is for you this morning. He's reminding you of his extent of his love for you. If God would give you the greatest gift of all, how could you ever doubt his provision for you? What we deserved was to be eternally condemned. Eternally in hell, apart from God. That's what we deserved. But God, in his love and his provision for us, said, no, I will give you Christ. He will take your place. He will, he will take the wrath that is due you. He will take the condemnation that is due you. And instead, I will give you life and give it to you eternally. Stott says this, the cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. This coming week, when you're tempted to complain or accuse God of not caring for you, think again of how God has already provided, you, provided for you in the most incredible and unexpected way. We deserve condemnation, but God has made a way for us not only to not be condemned, but to be just before him. And if he has already given us the greatest gift possible, how can we doubt whether he will provide what we need on a daily basis? You think God only cares about his kids at judgment day? He cares very deeply about every single one of us who are his children here today. And what Paul is saying here should be just like blow our minds once again. If, now look, 
do you question whether he will provide for you? Look at the cross is what he's saying here. Look, he's already provided for you in the greatest possible way. How will then he not also provide everything that you need as a believer? Think about what he has already given to every single believer here this morning in providing not only Christ, he has given us his word. He has shown us who he is. He has shown us the plan from beginning to end. He has shown us the way of salvation. He's shown us what we can know to be true. He has given us it all. What a treasure he has already given to us. So not only has he given us Christ for salvation, he's given us his word. As we've been going through Romans chapter 8, Paul made it clear that in his love for us, he's also given us his spirit to comfort us, to lead us, to guide us, to lead us in the way of salvation, to point us to Jesus Christ. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us the body of Christ that we may not become hardened by sin, that we might spur one another on and encourage one another, that we might be equipped for the work that is set before us. All these things he has given us. And will he not give you even more? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how, for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's already given you great gifts, why would you think that he would not give you small gifts? I love the, the, the word here, charizomai, which in the English is graciously give. It is to grant graciously and generously with the implication of goodwill on the part of the giver, to give, to grant, to bestow generously. Every good gift comes from whom? From God. What do you have that he has not given you? If he, he talks, if, if God so cares for the sparrows, if he so cares for the plants, how will he not much, so, much more so care for you? In your week, when you begin to doubt his goodness, again, be reminded of what this text says. God loves his children. And so when we come to him and ask for, him, for whatever we might need, listen, he hears you and he will answer now, it's important that we have a little bit of a distinction here and make sure we all understand what the text is saying. Give us all things. <gasps> I'm going to get a Lamborghini. That's what it says right here. It does not say that. <laughs> Look at the context of what he's talking about. Give you all things. What? For life, for godliness. What you actually need because what I might want actually could be detrimental to me. Just like a child who is three or four years old asking mom and dad to play with gasoline or a chainsaw, they're not going to say yes to those things. So when we ask for certain things, God will say no, or not yet, or yes. If it's what we need, he will say yes. Do you believe that this morning? 
Moose says this, certainly Paul's focus is on the things necessary for our salvation, the, the focus of the text, but we should not restrict the meaning to salvation as such, but include all the blessings, spiritual and material, that we acquire on the path toward that final salvation. Make no mistake, whatever you have, God has given you to help progress you in your sanctification and for the furtherance of his kingdom. I love how one author illustrated it. The story is told of a young newlywed couple. And as they're planning to get married, they asked some friends for some items. As they went to the neighbor to borrow them, after giving the items to her, the neighbor asked, is this all you want? Yes, I think so, the young bride answered. Then her neighbor, an experienced hostess, handed her some other items, explaining that she would need them as well. Later, the young woman remarked, I was so thankful I went to someone who knew exactly what I needed and was willing to supply it. How well that describes our God. The scriptures tell us that God is able to give abundantly above all that we can think or ask. Let's be honest, what we need, sometimes we don't even ask for, right? We, we don't even know that we need that, but God, what? He gives it to us anyway as the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. In Christ, we have the ultimate provision. We have the ultimate protection. And then thirdly, in Christ, we have the ultimate pardon, with the ultimate pardon, as we look at verses 33 and 34, it's almost like a legal setting, a courtroom setting. He begins by saying, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Everyone is the answer. Everyone, the world, society and culture, as they look at you, we're becoming a very judgmental society. Have you noticed that? Right? Society and culture have taken the throne, and they will tell you, if you are good or bad based on their morals, based on their decisions. But guess what? We don't need to worry about that. They may bring a charge against us, but we need not fear. What about your conscience coming against you? Maybe there's days where you question whether or not you will stand guiltless before God. Of course, there's Satan, the great accuser as well. And we're going to look at him in just a moment again. But the question stands, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Again, just a quick thing. We could just quickly pass over that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Okay, I think he, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about me. But another way we could we'd say this is, who will bring a charge against God's chosen people? That's you this morning if you're in Christ. You know that? You are elect. He has chosen you. 
Who's going to mess with God's people? Who's going to come against them? He is the one who's responsible for our salvation. He is the one who sits on the throne. He is the one who will judge. It does not matter what anyone else might think. It is God who justifies. So while enemies might hurl their accusations against us, they will fall to the ground. It does not matter what they say. It does not matter what your conscience says. It does not matter what Satan says. Isaiah 50, 8 to, 8 to 9 says this, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Now again, let's just stop and think about that. The accusations against you. Could it be that some of the accusations are true? Yep. Last time I checked, no one here is perfect. If I was to follow you around 24-7, should be a little creepy, right? And if I had somehow access to your thoughts, certainly I would be able to make an accusation against you and say, see, look, he sinned against you. God, he sinned against you. She sinned against you. They are guilty before you. And what would happen with that accusation? It is God who justifies. He is the one who determines whether those accusations will stick or not. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but it is Christ who saves us. He is the one who has already paid the price for that sin. So when the accusation goes out, see, he sinned. He's like, yeah, I already paid for that. Already paid for. He continues in verse 34. Who is it that condemns? It's interesting. As you go through the scriptures, Satan is the great accuser. He spends a whole lot of time accusing you before God. Do you know that? Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan accuses believers when? Day and night before God. It's not a part-time job for him. Day and night he accuses believers before God. We see what, a picture of what that looks like in Job 1, 8-11. Job 1, 8-11 and the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? What's Satan's response? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Of course he worships you. Look what you've given him. 
But if you just take all that away from him, guess what? He will curse you. MacArthur puts it like this. From the beginning to the end of Job's testing, the Lord affectionately called him my servant. Although Job's faith was not perfect, it was genuine. The Lord therefore permitted Satan to test Job, but he knew Satan could never destroy Job's persevering faith or rob his servant of salvation. He knew Satan's accusations against Job were not true. Why? Because God was over Job. He was sustaining him. In Zechariah 3.1, we have again this picture, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and guess who's right there? Satan, accusing, accusing against Joshua the high priest. And there again, we see God rebuking Satan, rebuking Satan and cleansing Joshua from his iniquity. In Luke chapter 22, we see Jesus telling us that Satan has demanded to sift Peter like wheat. And what does Jesus say? And I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would remain strong. Peter came against testing. He failed, but guess what? He didn't fail. His faith. His faith remained, and God restored him and used him mightily until the day that he died. How can I know that my salvation is firm in him? How can I know that these accusations will not find any merit before God? Well, he reminds us, it is Christ Jesus who died. He is the one who died. He is the one who became the sacrifice for our sins. God was the one who placed him on the cross. He is the one who took our sin and placed it on Jesus. He is the one who placed his wrath upon God for our sins. The act is apart from you and I. The only thing that you and I had to do with it was that it was our sin that was placed on him. How can I know for sure? How can I know for sure that I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant? It is Christ Jesus who has died. It is his sacrifice that has paid your debt. More than that, he was raised. All through the New Testament, we are told if Christ only died, we have no hope. But to show us that the sacrifice was pleasing unto God, God raised him from the dead. Death and sin have been defeated. Romans 4.25 says, Christ who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We are right before God because he has risen again. It has nothing to do with our merit. It has everything to do with what he's done. Not only did he raise from the dead, but 40 days later we read, and he rose to the right hand of God. He's sitting at the right hand of God today. What does that mean? He is sitting in a place of authority. Philippians 2 tells us that he's risen to his rightful place. And he's waiting for the day when he will return and complete the work that he has begun. He's a place of honor and authority. And as he sits there, it is him who is interceding for us. How incredible is that? 
I was just thinking about that picture. Satan coming before the throne, accusing. Saying, hey, 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 did you see what Matt did today? Did you see what Don did today? They're not truly your children. And it's almost as like Jesus is like, I'm sitting right here. Is this not proof enough? I have paid for those sins. Your accusations are futile. I have redeemed them. I have saved them. It's what Hebrews 7, 22 to 25 tells us. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so with the accusation, Jesus stands up for us and says, I have paid for those sins. Stott says it like this, his very presence at the Father's right hand is evidence of his completed work of atonement. And his intercession means that he continues to secure for his people the benefits of his death. With this Christ as our Savior, who died, was raised, and is exalted in his interceding, we know that there is now no condemnation for those who are united to him. We can therefore confidently challenge the universe with all of its inhabitants, human and demonic. Who is it that condemns? There will never be an answer. Their accusations will fail to stick because Jesus has already paid the price for our sin. All the demands of the law have been filled in Christ. In Christ, we have an eternal pardon. John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus put it like this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Your salvation is secure in Christ. In him you have the ultimate pardon. It is the Lord's doing, and it is incredible. This morning, do not doubt your salvation if you are in Christ Jesus. You can have full confidence in what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. It's all about him. In Christ, we have the ultimate protection, provision, and pardon. Remember that as you enter this new week. When you feel attacked from every side, do not fear. But remember, if God is for you, then who can be against you? Rest in his protection. Remind one another of this great truth. There is no one mightier. There is no one greater. And he is for you. One more time, I appeal to those who it is would be said, if God is against you, who can be for you? If God is against you this morning, I pray that you would stop and think about the weight of that statement. If God is against you, everything that you have, you will lose someday. 
all that is good in your life right now, the common grace that you receive from God right now, it will be gone, and God will eternally condemn you if you are not in Christ. And so this morning, if God is against you, I'm praying that today you would bow your knee before him. You would lay aside your pride and humble yourself before him and find forgiveness. When you are tempted to doubt God's love and care for you this week, again, look to the cross. If he's given you the greatest gift of all, then he will provide whatever you need each day. And lastly, when the world and Satan and even your own conscience tempt you, to doubt your justification. Remember it is Jesus who has purchased it. He has died. He has risen again. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding on your behalf when the accusations come in. Your pardon is secure in Christ. Redemption, God, is for us. Let us leave here confident in him, assured of his power, his love, and his forgiveness. Those are yours in Christ this morning if you're in him. An illustration is told of a family from Europe. They were very poor and they saved every penny they could to get from Europe to America. I don't know why they weren't coming to Canada, but this is a story. And so the family had been very frugal and they, got, they paid for the tickets and they, they got on the ship and, and, and they were rationed out these cheese sandwiches. That's what they were going to eat for the, for the entire voyage were these cheese sandwiches. And, 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 and the boy, the child, he was like on day three, he's like, I can't do this anymore. I can't eat, keep eating these sandwiches. And so dad, in his compassion, he gave him a nickel and he said, okay, why don't you go buy yourself an ice cream? So he went. He was gone a long time. And finally came back and, and he said, where were you? And the child said, well, I, I just finished three ice cream and a steak. And the father said, you got that all for five cents? He's like, no, it was all included in the ticket. Do you see the point of the illustration? If you have redemption in Christ. <laughs> it's all included. Your care, your love, your protection, your provision. It's all included in the ticket. God is good. Let me pray. God, you are good. Forgive us, Lord, for ever doubting that. For complaining, for doubting. God, help us. Help us to cling to the truth of these scriptures. Lord, help us to remember that we in Christ have the ultimate protection, provision, and pardon. Lord, you've provided it all. Lord, you take good care of your children. And so, Lord, help us this week to trust in you more to remember that you do work all things together for good for those who love you, for those whom you've called. Lord, thank you that no one can take us apart from you. Lord, thank you that our salvation is secure because Christ did it all. 
and he is doing it all, and he will do it all. It's, it's all in him. Lord, thank you that right now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and as Satan rails his accusations against us, Lord, you're just, you're, you're, you've covered it. Thank you that, Lord, we can have confidence that when we stand before you, we'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, help us to walk in confidence in you as we come out of this, this service today, as we enter a new week. Lord, help us to, to proclaim our hope in you to a lost and dying world. Help us to spur one another on when we, be, when we have these times of doubt, when we, when we get discouraged. Help us to press this truth into one another's hearts, remembering it is true, remembering that it is real, and that one day these things will all come to its full fruition when we stand before you. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you that you've given us your spirit to apply it to every person's heart here today. It's your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.